Amen. I'd like you to take a Bible out this morning and find Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4. There's some notes in your bulletin. You can follow along there. Philippians 4. Our passage this morning is a single verse, one verse. Normally on a Sunday morning, we try to cover a little bit more ground than just one verse, and that's intentional on my part. We would have spent years and years going through the Gospel of Luke if we went one verse at a time, so we just sort of took it in big chunks, and normally we try to sort of take whatever we're looking at as a chunk, try not to get too bogged down in the weeds, because sometimes if you get too bogged down in the weeds, you sort of miss the big picture of what's going on in a book or in a story. However, there is value from time to time in getting down in the weeds. There is value in slowing down. There is value in taking a single verse and digging down deep and thinking about what one verse means and how it applies to our lives. And that's what we're going to do this morning with Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. So before we read it, let's make sure we're all up to speed on the context of the book of Philippians. We had a week off last week for Easter, so you're now out of Easter mode. You get your brain back into Philippians mode. Let me just remind you of a few things that we've been talking about. Number one, Paul was motivated by deep, sincere love for the Philippians. We've seen this throughout the letter. These were people that he truly, truly cared about. In fact, most scholars say this was his favorite church, his favorite group of people of all the churches that he started. And just look at verse 1. I know we're going to read it in a minute, but just look at the terms of endearment that Paul uses in verse 1. He calls them brothers. He uses the word love, the word long, the word joy, the word crown, the word beloved. I mean, it's just about a dozen words in the verse, and about a third of them are Paul using terms of endearment, trying to communicate how much he cares about these people. And this isn't going to be a major emphasis in the message this morning, but as I thought about it this week, it's something I don't want to, to miss. I don't want to pass over. I just want to remind you that Christianity is inherently relational. Relational. It's about being brought back into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and it's, being a, it's about being brought into a relationship with God's people. Sometimes we think about Christianity as it's just about winning an argument, like you're debating someone at work and you just want to win an argument with them. Or sometimes we think about Christianity as just like, you know, something you do on a Sunday morning is just a block out of your schedule, it's just part of your routine. Or sometimes we think about Christianity in, in all sorts of different terms, maybe like academic lessons, like you have the best Sunday school teacher and you say, I, just, I like to come listen to my Sunday school teacher, just give me this lesson and I learn things and it's good. I just want to remind you that at its core, Christianity is relational. And Paul is using all of these terms for the people that he cares about. There was a Baptist pastor in the 1700s named John Fawcett. And I found a picture of him this week. Put this picture of John Fawcett up. Looks like he's got a little skull cap on or something. I don't know. But 1700s, he was a pastor in England. And he wrote hymns. And one of the hymns that he wrote is, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. And some of you may remember that hymn. And these are the lyrics to the hymn. It's a short hymn. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Before our Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers, our fears, our hopes, our aims are one, our comforts and our cares. 
We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. When we asunder part, it gives us inward pain, but we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. How many of you have ever left church thinking, now that we are parting asunder, I'm feeling inward pain? that I'm leaving my church family. You're just looking at your watch saying, hey, it's not noon yet. We can beat the Methodists to the Mexican food restaurant. We can get in that line at Rosa's. They're still over there across the street. We got the upper leg. This is a good Sunday. And let's be honest, you read that last line, and for most of us it feels a little bit cheesy, like a little bit overly sentimental, like you want to say, John, John, Pastor Fawcett, inward pain, when you have to leave church, inward pain when I'm sitting to a, through a sermon that's too long, but inward pain when you leave church. And part of the problem is we're just way too individualistic as Americans. We just think about ourselves and life revolves around us and our culture reinforces that at every turn. And it's helpful just to stop from time to time and to remind yourself that Christianity is inherently relational. It is not something you can do as a spectator sport. You cannot just come and attend church. What you're doing is not church at all. Because Christianity, by definition, is relational. Paul was motivated by this deep, sincere love for the Philippians. We're going to talk about the charge he gives to them. That's the focus of of our, our time this morning I just don't want you to miss that Paul cares about these people. He loves these people. He longs to be with these people. And I hope that at some level that happens to you here at Emmanuel. It may not be in about an hour or so when we dismiss and we all leave that you say, oh, my my heart is feeling inward pain. But I hope that there's a connection to the people here and I hope that you feel that and you know that Christianity is relational. I also want you, want you to know, I want to remind you that Paul has been warning the Philippians about the dangers of legalism and antinomianism. That's the, the immediate context of Philippians 4. Legalism says you can and you must earn your way with God. You've got to do certain things and not do certain things if you want to have a relationship with God and go to heaven someday. It's all on you. That's legalism. And Paul's been saying... No, it doesn't work that way. Paul says, I had this great list of things that I was going to present to God, and it's all just a bunch of rubbish. It's worthless. It means nothing when it comes to my standing with God. But then he turns the corner and he talks to this group of people we've called antinomians. Anti meaning against, namos meaning law. They're against all laws. And these are the folks that say, look, you can't earn it. You can't work for it. You just receive it as a gift. It's by grace. It's through faith. And so you just pray this prayer, trust in Jesus, and then you can do whatever you want to do with the rest of your life. It's really not so much about having a close relationship with Jesus or following Jesus. It's just about do you give sort of a head nod to the gospel. Yes, I agree that that's true. Great, now you're saved and you can do whatever you want to do. No rules or accountability. And Paul says that's ridiculous. 
The God who starts a good work in you is going to bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And you're supposed to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And you know that God's the one working in you to will and to work for his good purposes. So no, you can't just pray a prayer and then do whatever you want to do. And he's been battling both of these fronts. These folks who say you've got to earn your way with God and these folks who say you can do whatever you want and God's grace will cover you. The big idea of our verse is really simple. Paul urges the Philippians to stand firm in the Lord. He just commands them, stand firm in the Lord. That idea of standing firm is a a military term. It describes the soldier who stands his ground even in the face of vicious attack. And if you've been paying attention in Philippians, it's not the first first time Paul's mentioned it. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Verse 27, Paul says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So he's calling them to stand firm in their faith. And this morning we're going to think about and we're going to talk about what does it look like for you and I to stand firm in our faith. One last idea is this, and I just want to just throw this out so we're all on the same page, okay? Standing firm is more than an unchanging commitment to certain theological truths. It's more than just giving assent to certain doctrinal propositions. And this is what I mean. Some of you sit in the room this morning and you say, you know, I've been going to church all my life. I started off in the nursery, and I went through the preschool, and the elementary, and the youth, and the college, and the adults. I've been here all my life. I can't remember a time where I didn't believe the truth about Jesus. That's true in my life. I grew up going to church. I can't take you back to a time in my life where I wasn't hearing the gospel and didn't believe the truth about Jesus. Okay? That's all fine and good. But standing firm in your faith is more than saying, yes, I believe those things are true. Standing firm in your faith is genuine discipleship, truly living as a follower of Jesus Christ. And the Bible Belt is cram-packed. Churches in the Bible Belt are cram-packed with people who would say, I believe Jesus. I believe the truth about Jesus. I believe what the Bible says about Jesus. And then you look at their life and you say, but that hasn't impacted any area of the way that you live. There hasn't been a translation from inside this room to outside of this room. There hasn't been any sort of, any sort of movement from the things that you say you agree to to the way that you actually live your life. And what Paul's talking about when he says stand firm is not just, oh, stand firm. Yeah, I've believed those things for a long time and I'm not going to change my mind. It's not just an intellectual thing, but it's the way that you live your life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So it won't take us long. Look at Philippians 4. We'll read the verse. We'll pray and then we'll discuss it. Philippians 4.1, the Word of God says this, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Father, this morning we look at a, a short verse, just a few words, and we simply ask that your Spirit would take these truths that we're about to discuss and press them on our heart, Give us eyes to see, give us hearts to receive, 
Give us humility to to submit ourselves and to submit our lives to the authority of your word. And Father, be honored in the way that we respond to the scriptures. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the interesting things when you read through the New Testament, especially Paul's letters, is how often he calls people to stand firm. He says it over and over and over and over again. Almost every church that he writes a letter to, he says, stand firm. When he writes letters to Timothy and Titus, his pastor friends, he's calling them to stand firm. He just repeats it over and over. And this morning, we're not going to look at all of the examples where Paul says to stand firm, but I've pulled out seven. Seven seemed like a good round biblical number. So we're going to go with seven. And we're just going to look at these other passages and say, what does it mean to stand firm? When you, when you hear Paul tell the, the Colossians to stand firm or the Corinthians to stand firm, what does it mean? What does Paul expect of us? What did he expect of his friends in Philippi when he told them to stand firm in the Lord? And we're just going to read some of these verses and talk about them as we go digging deep on this one idea of standing firm. Okay, so here we go. In Paul's letters, what does it mean to stand firm? Number one, it's not just about keeping rules. You cannot reduce the idea of standing firm to a list of rules that you keep. Look what Paul says to the church in Galatia in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In Galatia, they were trying to come up with a list of things they could do to earn their way with God. And Paul says, look, that's just slavery. That's not what the gospel's about. You're not trying to earn your way with God or pay your way with God or merit your way with God. Don't submit to that stuff because Christ has set you free. If you think Christianity is just a long list of do's and don'ts, with all due respect and very kindly to you, I say, you understand nothing about Christianity. Nothing. There's plenty of world religions and and faiths that are offered to people around this planet that amount to a list of rules. Do this and don't do that. But if that's your idea of Christianity, you have completely missed the point of Christianity. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son? That's what we call it, parable of the prodigal son. Worst thing that ever happened to that story is we call it the parable of the prodigal son. Because you read it, You come to it in the Gospel of Luke and you say, oh yeah, this is about the kid who ran away from home and acted like an idiot and then he came back. And the point of the story is if you act like an idiot in college, then you can come back to church when you're out of college. We come up with silly applications and thoughts like that because we think the story is really about the prodigal son, the one who ran away. But there's a rule in parables that oftentimes the emphasis, the focus comes at the end of the story. And if you get to the end of the story, it's not about the son who ran away and came back. It's about the son who never left. It's about the son who stayed home and tried his hardest to keep all the rules. And when his brother comes back, you can see his disgust in the things that he says to his father. He says, I've been with you this whole time. Working, slaving, doing good things for you. And you've never given me any of these things. And when he says that to his father, it's like he opens up his heart and you get to peek inside. And what you see is he was never with the father at all. He was just trying to keep a bunch of rules so that there would be some reward at the end of the day. You can be very 
serious about keeping rules and you can at the same time be very far away from God. That was the Pharisees, right? Very serious about rules. And Jesus says, you know nothing about the Father. You're not, you're not children of Abraham or children of, of God. You're children of the devil. You know nothing about faith. You know nothing about a relationship with God. So listen to me. Does the Bible have rules? Yes. Does Jesus give us some commands and things that he expects us to do? Absolutely. Not, not going to deny that for a second. But when you think about standing firm in your faith, don't try to reduce it to a list of rules. Because as soon as you try to reduce it to a list of rules, you've completely missed it. What does it mean to stand firm? Number two, it must begin with the gospel. Standing firm must begin with the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul summarizes the gospel like this. Verse 1, he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you in which you received and in which you stand. I'm going to remind you of the gospel. And he goes on and he summarizes it like this. Christ was crucified. Christ was buried. Christ was raised from the dead. And all along the way, when Paul's summarizing it, Christ buried, crucified, buried, and raised from the dead, he says it was in accordance with the scriptures. It happened according to scripture. He keeps saying that over and over and over again. All of these things that Jesus did for us happened according to scripture, meaning that was the plan all along. It wasn't like God tried this Old Testament stuff for a while and it didn't work out so good, so he went to plan B with Jesus. Like That was the plan from the very beginning. That was the point of the sacrificial system, to remind the people, God is holy, and you're not. And the only way you can be brought into a relationship with him is if a sacrifice or a substitute dies in your place. And you can't provide it. God can provide it. Only God can provide it. Look, no one was saved in the Old Testament because a, a bull or a lamb or a dove was slaughtered on an altar. Every one of those sacrifices was intended to point the people forward and say to them, God is holy and you're not, and a substitute, a sacrifice has to die in your place. And Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, Jesus is that substitute. He's the sacrifice. Because God is holy and you're not, the only way that you can be reconciled is if you put your faith and your trust in what Jesus has done for you. Listen, if you started your quote-unquote Christian life with the idea that you were going to do a lot of good things for God and keep all the rules and you know, check all these boxes off and earn your way, you got to stop and you got to turn around. I mean, seriously, today you got to stop trying to keep all the rules in your attempt to earn your way with God. And the Bible would say you've got to repent and you've got to admit to God, I haven't kept all the rules. I can't keep all the rules. It's foolish for me to try to keep all the rules. Jesus kept the rules. And he died as my substitute. And that's the gospel message. And you've got to begin there if you're trying to stand firm. Some of you are just trying to stand firm on a flimsy platform of how good you can be how obedient you can be. That platform falls down every time. It is not a solid foundation for your faith. And so if you've never done it, you've got to start with the gospel and you've got to trust in Jesus as your substitute. What does Paul mean by standing firm? Number three, it involves feeling right emotions. That's part of standing firm is you feel right emotions. 
Romans 11, verse 20. Paul puts it this way. He says, They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Do not become proud, but stand in awe. Stand in awe. We're coming into the middle of a conversation in Romans 11, and the conversation is, is Paul saying, Look, God worked through the Jewish people for many, many years. Some of those people didn't believe his promises, and so he broke them off of his tree, so to speak. And he's taken the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and he's grafted them into his family tree. It's not because they're good people, but it's because they believe in Jesus. They're now part of God's family. They're part of this tree. And he's saying, some of these folks have been broken off because they didn't have faith. You've been grafted on, and it's not something you need to be proud or boastful about. When you think about how God has included you in his family, he's grafted you onto this tree, you need to stand in awe of who he is and of what he's done. Meaning you need to feel certain things. This is a biblical theme from the Old Testament all the way through the New. Sometimes we miss it. We talk about sin and we say, yes, sin is anything you you do or you say or you think that doesn't honor God. And that's true. Sin is anything you do or you say or you think that doesn't honor God. But it's also anything you feel that you ought not feel. Any emotion that you wrestle with that you shouldn't be wrestling with. And Paul says it is completely and entirely fitting if you're going to stand firm in your faith that you do it feeling awe toward God. And some of you, if you're just totally honest, would say, I don't feel a lot of awe and wonder. And if I'm totally honest with you, I could say to you and and confess to you, there's been times in my life where I didn't either. Where you pray and it just seems like it's bouncing off the ceiling, or you read the Bible and it just seems like you're never going to get out of Leviticus or whatever. You just think, I just don't feel a lot of awe right now. That's not a problem with prayer or the Scripture. That's a problem with me and you. That's sin, twisting our hearts and our emotions to feel things that we ought not to feel. And if you can gather together with God's people in a room, look, I'm not saying you need to be hysterical and cry and emotional and just a sort of a basket of emotions every time you come in this room. But if you can gather together with God's people and your heart is never moved or stirred, something's wrong. Seriously wrong. And again, I'm not saying... Like we're checking for tears, we're passing out Kleenex, and we're going to see how wet yours is, anything like that. I'm just saying if you can meet with God's people and listen to God's word preached and sing praises to God in your heart, you don't feel anything, something's wrong. And you need to dig into the scriptures. You need to confess that to God and pray that God would change your heart. Give me a heart that fears you. God, give me a heart that feels awe when I gather with your people. When I think about you as the creator and as the sustainer and as the savior and as the judge of all that exists, Paul's saying you ought to feel some awe and some wonder. Your emotions matter. Standing firm involves feeling right emotions. Number four, it's not a passive posture. It's not passive Look at 1 Corinthians 16, 13. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Paul says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, 
and be strong. Now look, I read that this week and I got to thinking about how people in the 21st century hear Paul. And I am well aware that a lot of folks think Paul was just a Neanderthal. Like, didn't understand women's rights and the value of women. I know people think that. And I'm just going to say to you, I I don't feel like I'm a total Neanderthal when it comes to gender issues, okay? You may think that I am, but I don't think I am. I have three daughters. I don't want them to just sort of play backseat to some man all their life. I want them to be strong. I want them to be smart. I want them to be confident. I want them to be capable, right? I don't think Paul was some kind of twisted Neanderthal that just wanted to hold women down. And I think, I'm just being honest with you, when he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, he was well aware of the fact that when they read it in church, there would be some women there. And yet he says to the church in Corinth, writing to men and women, he says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. You don't have to just take that and say, well, Paul's just some sort of male chauvinist pig. You look at that and you say, Paul was a human and he talked like we talk. You say this to your kids all the time. Put your big boy pants on. Let's go. Put your big girl pants on. Come on, it's time to get going. Rub some dirt on it. One of my friends had surgery this week. I sent him a Facebook message. I said, just rub some dirt on it, man. Suck it up. What's the matter with you? Act like a man. That's in the Bible. Paul is saying... There is nothing soft and weak and passive about standing firm in your faith. Have you ever tried to set out to invest in another person and to make disciples in somebody? There's nothing passive about that. Nothing. There's absolutely nothing passive in people from this church saying, I want to go around the world. I want to go to Kenya. I want to go to Toronto, Canada. I want to go to Alaska to tell people about Jesus Christ. That's not passive. There is absolutely nothing passive in you going to work or to school and saying, there are people in my workplace or in my classroom that need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, and God has put me there to tell them about it. That's not passive. So when you hear this, stand firm, that doesn't mean, well, just just hang back, just relax, it's all going to be okay, you don't need to do anything, is not a passive idea. It involves strength, and Paul puts it to the church in Corinth like this, act like men. Don't be weak. Don't be passive. This is how you stand firm. Number five, standing firm is a spiritual battle. A spiritual battle. So easy for us to forget this. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Ephesus. Chapter six, he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. We're going to count them. Number one, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand, there it is a second time, in the evil day, and having done all of this, to stand firm, stand therefore. It just says it over and over And over again, stand. You've got to make your stand. You have got to stand firm. You've got to withstand in the evil day. And listen to me. He's not saying you've got to stand against the Democrats. And he's not saying you've got to stand against the Republicans. And he's not saying you've got to stand against those crazy Muslims. 
And he's not saying you got to stand against the homosexuals and the atheists and the, this group and that group. He's saying your stand is spiritual in nature. He is not calling any of us to stand against anybody that you can point a finger to in this world. He's saying, to use a phrase from Peter's, one of Peter's letters, you have an enemy and his name is the devil and he's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. And you better watch out and you better stand tough. And you better put the armor of God on. Not so that you can bash this group of people. Not so that you can fight this group of people. But you have a spiritual battle waging all around you whether you realize it or not. He wants to destroy your families and your marriages and your children in your workplace, in your friends, in your career, in your Sunday school class, in this church. He is prowling around looking for people to devour so you had better stand firm. And he puts it this way to the the church in Ephesus. We are wrestling against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Stand firm. Number six. It requires spiritual maturity. Standing firm requires spiritual maturity. Colossians 4.12. It's an interesting verse. He says, Epaphras, who was one of you. So there's this guy named Epaphras. He was from Colossae, and apparently he's with Paul at this point. Epaphras, who was one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you. He's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. And what's he praying for? That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Your buddy Epaphras, he's praying for you. His number one prayer, he's struggling all the time, and this is that you would stand mature. We've totally missed the idea of spiritual maturity in the United States. Wherever you want to sort of put this imaginary bar of what spiritual maturity looks like, we've, we've lowered it way too low. And I could say a lot of things on this. I had a lot of ideas this week, and I came across a sermon clip of a preacher describing an example of how we've taken this idea of of spiritual maturity and we've just lowered it down. And I'm just going to paraphrase what this guy says. He says, imagine you have a young person in your church, high school, college age. This young person loves the Bible. They read it all the time. They study it. They go to the bookstore. They buy commentaries on the Bible. They love to teach the Bible. They want to be involved in Sunday school. They help at VBS teaching children's classes. They like to go on mission trips and and tell people about Jesus Christ. I mean, they're just eat up with the Bible. They love to study theology. They like to to get the books of old guys who come before us and read about doctrine and theology and truth about God. And they like to study church history. They're interested in, in what God's done through his people throughout the years. What would most of us say to that young person when it comes time for them to pick a vocation. Most of us would probably say, you should go into ministry. Man, you should, you should be a preacher. You should be a missionary. You should go to seminary somewhere. Why? When did somebody reading the Bible and caring about theology become the litmus test for who should go to seminary or not? Why don't we expect out of all of our young people that they love the Bible, that they study theology, that they care about sharing the gospel, that they want to invest in people in their own church? Why would that just be true of somebody that God's calling to ministry and not true of all of us who are striving to be mature in our faith? 
Now, if that young person wants to go to seminary or the mission field or preach or whatever, fantastic. But just because a young person or any person is interested in the Bible doesn't mean they can't be a pumper or a teacher or a truck driver or a stay-at-home mom or any other number of things that a person could do with their life. We've taken this bar of what maturity looks like and we've lowered it so far that when somebody comes along and they show some signs of spiritual maturity, they look like some kind of overachiever. Like, you're making the rest of us look bad. You better go off to seminary. Make us feel better about ourselves. Maybe we ought to just take the bar off the ground and raise it up a little bit and say, we expect that of all of our people. Do you understand that as your pastor? I expect that of every last one of you, that you read the Bible, that you love the Bible, that you care about theology, that you share the gospel with people you work with and go to school with, that you want to be involved in missions, that you want to find a place to serve in your church. I'm not like looking out in the crowd saying, who's doing that so we can send them to Kenya on a mission trip. I'm looking out saying, that should be true of all of us. And Paul says to his friends in Colossae, look, your buddy Epaphras is praying for you. He greets you, he loves you, he misses you, he's praying for you, and what he's praying is that you would be spiritually mature, and that as mature people, you can stand. You can stand firm. Last idea is this, standing firm begins and ends with the apostolic faith. Apostolic faith. Look what Paul says to the church in Thessalonica. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Hold to the traditions. Now, as Baptists, we hear that, and we sort of have our radar up against Roman Catholicism, and we say tradition. We don't care about tradition. Tradition doesn't matter. We don't care what that guy said. We don't care what that guy said. Look, when Paul talks about tradition, he's not saying it's tradition that we have a men's cake bake every spring, or it's tradition that we go to this youth camp, or it's tradition that we sing this many songs on a Sunday. He's saying, when I was with you, I taught you some things. And I've been writing to you, and I've been teaching you some things. And that's where you take your stand, on the truth. It's not going to change. It doesn't need to be updated. You don't need a new revision. You just take your stand on the same old gospel truth that we've been preaching to you from the beginning. And it's amazing. We stand here 2,000 years later, and we pray and we hope that we're standing in that same stream of teaching, saying, I don't have anything innovative to offer you. I don't have anything new to offer you. I don't have anything creative to offer you. The people who stood up in that baptistry and got baptized, they're not believing in something new. They're believing in something old. They're making the exact same profession of faith that people have made for 2,000 years. I believe that God is holy. I know that I'm a sinner. Jesus is the only way that that problem can be fixed, and I'm all in with Jesus. That's not new. That's the same old gospel message that Paul preached 2,000 years ago, and that's what we stand on, the same old truth, the same old gospel. As a church... Emmanuel Baptist Church, that's where we want to take our stand. Not that we're the most creative group of people in town, not that we're the most innovative group of people in town, whatever. Who cares? We take our stand on the apostolic faith, and it's a foundation under our feet. In your family, this is where you take a stand. 
on God's word that never, never changes. And in your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, this is where you stand firm. Not on your own fanciful ideas about this or about that, but on the truth of God's word that doesn't change. So this morning I want to pray for you. I want to pray for your family. I want to pray for our church that God would strengthen us to stand firm. So let's pray. Father, we love you. We pray for ears to hear this morning what you're calling us to. We pray for conviction and for your power in us so that we might stand firm in the gospel and the truth, that we might be mature, that we might feel the right emotions, that we would never reduce our faith to a list of do's and don'ts. Father, I pray for the folks in the room and I pray for those who are not followers of Jesus and I pray that today as we've talked about the gospel, as we've talked about you, we've talked about our sin, we've talked about Jesus who died for us and was buried and raised from the dead that they would find hope and life in that good news. Father, we want to sing, we want to worship in response to who you are, to what you have done for us and to what you've called us to. So as we lift our voices together, we pray that you would be honored and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.